Uh, if you have Bibles, um, I, I, I changed up, and, and poor Annie. Annie does a great job for us, the communications and connections, and then like last minute I changed the passage that we're going to be in. So it says a different passage in your uh, bulletins than we're actually going to be in. We're going to be in a couple. The first place will be is 1 Corinthians 15. So if you um, have Bibles and want to make your way there, page 961 on those black hardcover Bibles. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of maybe three-quarters of the way through your Bible, somewhere about there. Uh, before we, we get rolling in this topic of the resurrection and the victory of Jesus, I just want to just take a couple minutes and just share a little bit about uh, what God has been doing in me personally, what God's been doing in, in my life over uh, recent months and continues to do today. It was about this time a year ago, around this time a year ago, um, my, my confidence as a pastor was just shot. Just completely shot. Um, circumstantially, it had been a really hard series of months uh, leading up to about this time a year ago. And while I wanted to explain you know, my lack of, of confidence in this role by the circumstances that were going on around me, the, the sad reality as I reflect on that and have reflected on that is that if my confidence gets shot by circumstantial things and circumstantial difficulties, then the reality is that my confidence was in the wrong place to begin with. And specifically for me, my confidence often rests on the ability to at least work hard to figure it out so that I can do a good enough job in whatever I'm doing in that moment. That's where I, that's where I go and that's where I went. And it's not hard for me, to, as I say it that clearly, to think about that and go, that is, um, that's insufficient, that's short-sighted, that is really folly to try to live and serve in a role caring for God's people based on my ability to work hard enough and figure it out. Uh, and so what I want to say to you this morning as a church is, I'm sorry for that. And I hope that you will forgive me for that. Because whether or not that was a, uh, a direct offense to you, whether or not you felt that in a direct way, if this is your church, if, if this is your community, then there's, there's no way that doesn't impact you indirectly, at least. I wish, and I'm sure some of you can resonate with this, I wish that my sin and that my shortcomings like, stopped with me, didn't affect beyond that. Uh, they don't. They affect far beyond that. They affect my wife a lot. They affect my kids, my family, my friends, and then... Just as someone that's called to care for and shepherd people in the local church, it affects all of you. Um, so that's why, I, that's why I want to take a moment to say this is what God's done and is, has been doing and showing me to apologize to you for that, to repent of that even in a public way and ask for your, for your forgiveness. In the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus dictates these letters, seven of them, to these churches in Asia Minor. And in one specifically to the church in Ephesus, he says this. He says, I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here's, here's the conviction that I can experience from, that I do experience, have experienced, am experiencing from, from those words. I've been so fixated on trying to endure and persevere, uh, trying to figure out how to be a good pastor and leader, that I have often forgotten my first love. And I've been so fixated on trying to just persevere in the midst of hardship and hard circumstances that I've often disconnected myself, not communed with at a deep level, with the only one who is the source of real uh, endurance and perseverance. 
And as I've reflected on this, and even in part of sharing this today, I want to try to model something for you, because I'm sure that you go through things like this in your life as well. Uh, and so as I've, as I've thought about this, I've thought, like, what control do I have over that? Like, probably like you, I can't generate a passionate zeal in my own heart for God. I can't generate, like, a warmth in my own heart for, for God. And some of this is the natural ebb and flow of the Christian life. The Christian life is, are these peaks of vibrancy and thriving, and then these long stretches of, of duking it out and suffering and kind of doing things because you, you know you're supposed to and hoping that your heart kind of catches up. That's, that's I think, a lot of the Christian life. But what, what you can do, what I can do and what I failed to do, is to really prevail upon the throne of God's grace, to beg him to give me that kind of warmth, Uh, that kind of passion that I can't muster up myself. And what I can do and what I failed to do was like Jacob does in the book of Genesis. He's wrestling with God, and he holds on to God. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so that's the kind of life that I want to live when I'm in these moments of of struggling to have a, 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 Jesus as my first love and a passionate zeal for that. I want to live that kind of life where I, I'm clinging to God, saying, I will not let you go until you stir that kind of affection in me for you. Now, I'm, I'm grateful. I have a lot of hope. I think in recent months, um, it feels like, a, like this part of me is kind of coming alive again. Uh, it's inconsistent. It's slow, but I think it's happening. I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'm not naive enough to promise you that like, it won't ever happen again. Uh, more honestly, I probably promise you that it will happen again in some kind of season. And so, in these moments where, where, I, where I am just like you trying to pursue Jesus faithfully, but I'm in a role where I lead and I'm trying to, to offer you something out of that, what I can always offer you and my commitment to, to always offer you is my hope in God. I can't promise you I'll offer you the zeal. I can't, but in my most zealous moments and in my most, most lethargic and, and, and apathetic and loveless moments, my hope is in God. Uh, and so my commitment to you is to offer you always my hope in God and hope that you would hope in God as well. And the reason that we can hope in God is what we're talking about today. The reason that we can hope in God is because the gospel of Jesus is not about my, the strength of my faith or the strength of my passion or zeal. It's about the object of that faith. And what we're celebrating today, specifically as we look at this part of the Apostles' Creed, Jesus is not just a crucified Savior. Jesus is a risen and reigning King. So let me pray for us, and then let's turn our attention to the word of God. Let me pray. God, we are, um, I am, desperately in need of you constantly to renew me, to not let me be distracted, to not let me run down uh, patterns of sin, whether that be trusting in my own abilities or whether that be neglecting what you have called me to do or whatever sin that might be. We need you, Jesus, to renew us in the gospel constantly. And we're grateful that we get to celebrate today because we've got the basis of our hope in your resurrection. And not only your resurrection, but that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, that you were reigning with him, that you live to intercede for us, as we sang just a few moments ago. So, so stir our affections even today through your word. Work deeply in us where our hearts are hard, where our hearts are apathetic or loveless toward you or toward others. Uh, May your resurrection bring about a kind of resurrection in our own life as we are united with you. And we pray that in your name. Amen. So as uh, Shay mentioned earlier, we're we're continuing the series in the Apostles' Creed.
and we're talking about Jesus' resurrection and victory today. Uh, I'm really not going to spend as much time talking about the events of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension to the Father in heaven, other than to say this, that as Christians we believe Jesus' physical bodily resurrection from the dead is a historical reality. Not, a, uh, not something mythical, uh, not a legend that was made up by his followers, not something that's metaphorical, like he, he's alive in our hearts. Uh, no, we believe this is a historical reality. And if that were ever disproven, if, if someone were to somehow stumble upon and find the tomb of Jesus, and this was Jesus' body and his bones in a tomb, the entire Christian faith is done. Right? Scripture itself doesn't give us like a back door or a plan B for that. The Apostle Paul hangs the entirety of the Christian faith on the resurrection. He says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is futile. It's worthless. You're still in your sins. Your faith is worthless. And actually, you're to be pitied more than anyone else. So when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension to the Father in heaven, it's not a figurative, metaphorical thing. We're talking about things that happen within time and space. And really then, as you often might hear if you've been around the church for for a while, that makes all the difference in the world. Have you ever heard that? Someone says, the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. What does that actually mean? I think it's completely true. But sometimes I think we can kind of slip into platitudes or sayings or phrases as Christians and say, the resurrection changes everything. It's like, it does. What does it actually change? What difference does it actually make? That's where I want to spend the rest of our time Uh, today and considering that. And this is by no means exhaustive, but I want to look at three passages, they're relatively short, um, that teach these three monumental differences that Jesus' resurrection and his reign make. The passages, they'll they'll overlap a little bit, but but generally speaking, we'll look at like one passage per point. So here's the three things we're going to look at. That Jesus secures a victorious resurrection future. That's one of the differences it makes. That Jesus empowers a present resurrection life and that Jesus bridges the gap with his resurrection love. So first, because Jesus is alive and reigning at the right hand of the Father, he secures a victorious resurrection future. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read verses 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When we think about Uh, Jesus overcoming death and rising from the dead and ascending to the Father, it draws our attention first to this victorious resurrection future. And there are a couple pieces of that. One piece of that is a personal resurrection for those who believe. In Scripture, we've got all these various pictures of what salvation entails. There's uh, adoption. We're part of God's family. There's freedom. There's new life. But central to all of these pictures of salvation in Scripture is this idea that you and I, by faith, we're united with Christ. That we are in Christ. Christ is in us. And so when Paul says that in Adam we die, that means that we are united with Adam, our first parent, our first father. We inherit his sin nature. We inherit the guilt and the pollution of sin. We get Adam's death because we are in Adam. But then, united with Christ, we are made alive. Jesus is the second and the better Adam. 
Our union with Christ means that we receive all of the benefits that Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection accomplished. We get all of the benefits of that, and we get to apply them for us. And it also means that we will experience our own physical bodily resurrection when Jesus comes again. So Jesus' resurrection is the most important resurrection by far. But what Paul is saying here is it's not the only resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits, but then those who are united with him, who are in him, they too will rise. You perhaps have sung uh, songs that celebrate um, that truth. Um, one of them that maybe we sing at Easter a lot is Charles Wesley's hymn, Love's Redeeming Work is Done. And there's a line in there that says this, um, Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise, ours the cross, the grave, and the skies. And that song is celebrating our union with Christ because we are in him. Jesus' death is like our death. Jesus' resurrection is like our resurrection. We experience what he has experienced vicariously because of his, of his work. But this isn't merely a personal resurrection future. It's a resurrection future really for all that God has made, for all of God's creation. Jesus' resurrection is what one author called the teaser trailer of a whole new creation. Now, that's the other piece that Paul talks about here in this, this passage in 1 Corinthians. In verse 24, it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And the last enemy to be defeated is, is death. So Jesus' resurrection means Jesus wins, right? It is the definitive victory over Satan's sin and death. And Jesus reconciles the world to himself. How does he reconcile the world to himself? He does it in one of two ways. He either redeems everything that is at present rebelling against him. That's us as people. That's certain systems that exist. That's even creation itself in some ways. But for anything or anyone who will persist in rebellion, who will not be redeemed, that's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. He puts all of the enemies that, that persist in rebellion under his feet. And he says there then that the final enemy is death itself. Now, all, I don't have to tell you this. All of you know the sting and the pain of death in some way. All of you know that. Some of you are more acquainted with that than you ever should have to be in this life. Some of you have lost kids, your own kids. Some of you have lost parents when you were way too young to lose a parent. Um, some of you have just lost a lot of friends or family members. And maybe cancer is a word that you hear way too often in your life because of the people that you know. Our friends in our neighborhood, and, and this family was also part of some neighborhood gatherings for us, 41-year-old man with a wife and a daughter who's eight years old died two days ago from, from colon cancer. And it's just this constant reminder uh, that there's a sting and there's a pain of death that is in our world and in our lives. Don't you want someone to put an end to that? Don't you want someone to put an end? Don't you want to, to not get another phone call that says someone else that you love has died? One of the highlights for me of this past week, I was with a, with a bunch of pastors and their wives at uh, an Acts 29 pastors conference. One of the highlights for me was singing this song with these men and women called Death in His Grave. And the chorus says this, On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king. It's talking about Jesus, right? On Friday he's a thief, on Sunday he's a king. Laid down in grief, 
but awoke with the keys of hell. And on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ, laid death in his grave. So the final enemy to be defeated is death itself. And in the end, death itself died. And I love that picture. It's a picture that I don't think of near as much as I want to think of it now that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he rose with the keys of hell in his hand. And so in Revelation 1, he says, I am the one who died and I am alive forevermore. And behold, I have the keys of death and hell. And what that means then is that when Jesus says to Peter and to his apostles that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that means that the church, by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, will storm the gates of hell, will rescue those that are otherwise enslaved to sin. Right? That's, the, that's, what, that's what Jesus accomplishes with his resurrection. That's the victorious future, that he holds the keys of hell and death and that one day they will be no more. So Jesus secures this, this victorious resurrection future. That should lead you and I to rejoice more in the work of God. All right? That God is not willing to abandon his creation to the corruption and the fracture of sin. That he's not willing to cede the world, or really any part of it, to the powers of Satan, sin, and death. He's going to bring about not only a resurrected future for us as individuals, but for all that he made. should also give us a deep longing for the day that he does that. Right, the second to last uh, sentence in Scripture, that should become our refrain in this life. It's, Amen, come Lord Jesus. If you want to memorize a verse in Scripture that's not too long, that's a great one to memorize. Four words, Amen, come Lord Jesus. It's a great refrain for our lives. Not only that, the victorious resurrection future should compel us to look for ways to experience the reconciliation he is bringing today. Because there's a way, and I, th- and I think you'll know what I mean when I say this, you've probably done this as I have, there's a way for us to become so fixated on the future that we neglect the present. And so second, let's talk about that. Because Jesus is alive, reigning at the right hand of the Father, he empowers a present resurrection life. And if you flip back one book in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, so let me read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. That's page 942 if you're using those black card cover Bibles. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A couple more verses. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. In uh, Flannery O'Connor, many of you are familiar with her and her work, her short stories. Flannery O'Connor's short story uh, called A Good Man is Hard to Find. There's a character who's simply called the misfit. And the misfit is a, is a, is a pathological killer. He's a murderer in the story. There's this moment, though, where he has this really honest reflection about the resurrection. And he says this. He shouldn't have done it, he being Jesus. He shouldn't have done it. 
he thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. He said this and his voice had become almost a snarl. Okay. The resurrection of Jesus is not just about this victorious future, a bodily resurrection for me and a new creation. The resurrection really bears weight on everything in the present. And that's what's so vividly stated there by the misfit in Flannery O'Connor's work. If Jesus rises from the dead, the only fitting response is to throw off everything else, anything that might compete for your attention or your affections, to throw all that off and to follow him. But if he didn't, what the misfit's saying there is go do whatever makes you happy. Go do whatever it is that you want to do in any given moment. Now, for most of us, it's probably not killing someone and burning down their house. But maybe it is. But maybe it is. Uh, It's giving free reign to the sinful desires in our hearts. So imagine what that world would look like if you just gave free reign to the thoughts that come to your mind in a week. Right? Your neighbor comes home with a new car and you think, I wish I had that car. And you just steal it because you want it. Right, think about that. Or you're walking down the street, you see someone who's attractive, and you look at them as someone just as something that can satisfy a sexual craving or sexual desire. Right? Who cares that they're an image bearer of God with a soul? Who cares that they've got a family and relationships that let's just, let's just I'm selfishly going to look at that person as someone who can meet a need or a desire that I have in a moment. Or you don't like your job? Quit. You know, I'm tired of my family freeloading on me anyway. I'm going to go do something else. Right? What if we gave action to the thoughts that actually came to our mind. I think the misfit's like, he's the, the only difference between him and I is that he's actually doing the things that are sinful in his heart. What the Apostle Paul says here in Romans 6 is that united with Christ, we begin to live a resurrection life now. And the thing that he focuses on, what that means, is freedom from slavery to sin. I think there for us are, are two errors that we can make, uh, that Christians can make here. One is to claim that, that a kind of sinless perfection is possible in this life. And let me just say it flatly, it is not. It is not. Uh, to believe that you can be perfect and sinless in this life, you have to shrink your definition of sin dramatically, and you have to start using the word mistake a whole lot more. So like, that guy cut me off and I flipped him the bird. That wasn't sin, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. Okay? Uh, I don't think that's the error that most of us in this room make. Uh, that might be your background. That's, that's the theological tribe that I was part of growing up. That's part of their theology. Uh, so it's the background maybe for some of us. Um, the error I think that most of us make in this way is to adopt a fatalistic view of sin. We know we won't be perfect in this life. We know that there is sin that remains in our hearts. And so gradually and probably subconsciously, we just begin to accept it to accommodate it, to rationalize it. And and one of the biggest offenders here, and I'm guilty of this, and I imagine many of you would be too, personality is one of the biggest rationalizations we use for this. Right? That's just my personality. But can we just talk about that for a second? Each of our personalities are this incredibly frustrating mixture of beauty and evil. Beauty because we are image bearers of God. We bear the image of God himself evil because of the fall, we've inherited our first father's sin nature, and we have a corrupted image of God in us because of the fall. Frustrating mixture of those two things. Some of us, um, 
And so some of us have an, a more assertive personality. We have a more assertive personality. Um, and, and we say, okay, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was made. That's true. There's beautiful things about that. But that personality is fractured by sin, right? So you'll wound people with your words if you have that personality. You'll bulldoze people by the, by the frequency or the force of your tone or your interactions with them. And that damages people. That hurts people. On the other side, some of us have a, a very passive personality, And that personality, too, is fractured by sin. It is the way we are, but it's fractured by sin. And so at times, we don't step in when people need us to step in. And we don't, we abdicate opportunities to love people when we've got an opportunity to love people. And that damages, and that hurts people. Right? Some of us have such an optimistic personality that we really struggle to mourn with those who mourn. And some of us have such a pessimistic, melancholy personality that we really struggle to rejoice with those who rejoice. We have to stop hiding behind personality and using it as an excuse or a rationalization for sin. And so here's Paul's argument in Romans 6. In terms of our standing with God, where do we stand with God? Positionally, because of the resurrection, we are raised above the fall. Right? We are not enslaved to sin anymore. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God. But experientially, and you know this better than me and, and better than anyone. We all know this better than anyone about ourselves. We are not above the fall. Uh, Sin pervasively affects every aspect of our lives and our world. And so Paul says in an active, ongoing way, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Instead of fatalism, fight. Will we sin? Yes. But in any particular instance, is sin inevitable? Do we have to sin in any particular moment? No. No. And here's why the resurrection is so central to that and why the resurrection alone can empower living this way, it's because the resurrection definitively declares that we can stop giving more credit to the fall than we can to God's redemption. We can stop giving sin more credit than it actually deserves, right? We don't have to use our mind and our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Because we are dead positionally in our standing to sin, we can actually use our lives, our bodies, our minds as instruments of righteousness for God. Sin will have no dominion over you. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we've been brought from death to life. Lastly, because Jesus is alive, because he's reigning at the right hand of the Father, what difference does that make? Well, he bridges the gap with his resurrection love. Flip over just a couple pages to Romans 8. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor, the height, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a lot of great stuff in that passage. We'll just touch on a tiny bit of it today. I just want to say it this way. 
Jesus' resurrection is all about God's love. And before you nod along because that sounds good, just consider this. Think about this for a second. Most of the time when we think about God's love, we don't think about the resurrection. We think about two other things, the incarnation and the death of Jesus. Those are typically the events in in Jesus' work of redemption that we think about when we think about the love of God. And rightfully so. God loved people, so he sent his son into the world to dwell among us. That's the incarnation. And God so loved people that Jesus came to earth and lived among us in that way so that he might die in our place on the cross. And he himself says, no greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But Paul says here, it's not just the incarnation, it's not just Jesus' death that displays the love of God. It's also the resurrection. Because when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father, what's he doing? Okay, we've already looked at one piece of that. He's reconciling the world to himself, this huge cosmic work that he's doing. But also, and this was the words of encouragement today, and it's right there in the middle in verse 34, he's interceding for us. So at every moment... Jesus is pleading the merits of his finished work on our behalf. A merely incarnated Jesus can't do that. A merely crucified Savior can't do that. A resurrected and risen King seated at the right hand of the Father can and does. That's what Jesus is doing. And here's the difference that makes in the Christian life. It means that just beyond experiencing, just beyond fighting to experience resurrection life now, and longing for resurrection life and victorious resurrection future, it means that in every single moment between now and then, we will be actively kept by this resurrection love of God. And without this, our tendency is just to bounce back and forth between those other two things. Right? We live in the moment, and then sometimes we long for eternity. We bounce back and forth between the two. We live in the moment, we're trying to, trying to fight sin, trying to, to put sin to death, not let it reign in our mortal body. And then when we fall short of that and do sin, we long for eternity. We say that refrain, amen, come Lord Jesus. But then longing for eternity and kind of being fixated on that with being no earthly good, not thinking about the present, then we start to slowly accommodate sin and start to think subconsciously, well, someday it won't be that way anymore. I guess it's okay that it's there, that it's there now. And we go back and forth and round and around. That's, and so the question for us, we've got to ask, is that all there is? Is that all there is for us as followers of Christ? There's an episode of The Office where Michael Scott is having money problems. And everyone else is trying to get him to see like this is a huge deal. Like, hey, Michael, you have no money. Uh, that's, a, that's kind of important. You need to find a way to, to get some money and get out of debt. He doesn't see it as a big deal. He says at one point in response, okay, yes, money's been a little tight lately. But at the end of my life, when I'm sitting on my yacht, am I going to be thinking about how much money I have? No. I'm going to be thinking about how many friends I have and my children and my comedy albums. I mean, I, mean, I have a yacht, so I obviously did pretty well money-wise. Okay, absurd, right? Absurd. As absurd as that, of that, as that line of thinking is, isn't that how you and I sometimes think about the resurrection? Isn't that how we think about the resurrection? The obvious question for Michael Scott, of course, is, well, how are you going to get from here to there? So, Christian, how are you going to get from here to there? How are you going to get from here to there? And the answer is the interceding resurrection love of Jesus Christ. 
Who can separate us from the love of God when Christ is alive, when Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, when he is at every moment a flesh and blood sitting next to God, reminder that the penalty of sin has been paid and that victory has been won. And this too is the victory of the resurrection. Not only a perfect future destiny, not only being empowered to fight today, but a confidence that God will bridge the gap. A promise that he will carry us across this wearisome, tarrying, long gap between now and forever. Between our standing in Christ as though seated above the fall and the day he comes again and our experience finally catches up to our standing. The gap between resurrection life today and resurrection future forever. And so considering these things, May we be a people, may we be a church that grasps the worth of the resurrection and the victory of Jesus. Uh, May we desperately long for this victorious resurrection future. May we fight sin today because we've been empowered to live that quality of resurrection life now. And may we rest confidently in the resurrection love of God that keeps you and me every single millisecond between now and then. Jesus is alive, Jesus is reigning, and nothing will separate us from his love. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your resurrection. And wherever you are trying to wake us up to where we need to grab a hold of the benefits of your resurrection and experience them, I pray that we would. I pray that we would be those who, acknowledging and recognizing how how much worth there is in what you've done, that we would also be propelled outward into the world, that other people would know these realities of your resurrection. Make us a kind of people that cling to you, that long for that day, that, that fight in the present, but that also have confidence of the gap, have confidence that you're keeping us between now and then. And may even tangibly, specifically, coming to this very table every week, Be that. Be the reminder that this work you have accomplished in the past guarantees this future, but also sustains us every single moment between. May we feast at this table this morning with our hearts filled with faith that you give us and rejoice together in your resurrection and your victory. We pray that in your name. Amen.